Ooh, here comes our train. We might want to wait for just a moment. Yep. Seven fifteen. Because I all yeah. reliable. Takes me back. Yeah. Go ahead, Sean. Try it. You guys are scared how cold open you, aren't you? Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, CEO and lead singer of America's favorite novelty construction company slash acapella cover band, Hartman's Hard Hats. <laughs> and I am excited to share with everyone our big announcement on our upcoming merger with the premier licensing and inspection assistance service, Peter Mann's Permits. <laughs> Shockingly, you did not take my title with that latter part. <laughs> you, you have multiple businesses? You're such a busy guy. <laughs> well, I'm co-host Jeremy. I like to think of myself as the the Henry the Eighth of the podcast. <laughs> you are, you are. Yeah, I believe in the divine right of kings. Wonderful. I am co-host Peter Cook. I'm a dude. He's a dude. She's a dude. They're a dude. We're all dudes. Hey. 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 That had nothing to do with the album we're talking about today, by the way. <laughs> We've gotten in such a habit of like having highly referential titles to the album we're talking about, so it always throws us off when someone just does a random title like we used to. I was listening to an episode from around a year ago, and we weren't really doing that yet then, and I was like, eh, let's, uh, let's go a different direction. That I watched Good Burger recently for the first time, and that's a reference to Good Burger. For those keeping score. <laughs> Is that what that's from? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm glad you're caught up on the cultural touchstone that is Good Burger. <laughs> Our former guest of the show, Kurt, a.k.a. Useless Eater, I, I believe that's a, a staple of his uh, cinema experience, <laughs> from what I remember. <laughs> oh, you passed up on cinema diet? <laughs> so, Peter, what record are we going to talk about? today today we are going to talk about the 1967 release on mgm herman's hermits blaze 420 blaze it yeah <laughs> true or false peter this is the most british album we've done on the podcast i think you're right you know true or false Peter, this is the most British album. Period. Mm, that can't be true. Not that I can think of one that automatically defeats it in that uh, abstract category, but. 
The Kinks album that we did is a very American release by the Kinks, but I would say that at their height of Britishdom, the Kinks rivaled Herman's Hermits as far as the most British of the British invasion bands. And yet one of them was much more popular in America than the other one. Yeah, yeah, that would be Herman's Hermits. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And we'll get into all that. This is the sixth album from Herman's Hermits, released in October of 1967 we're going to start with the opening track which is called museum side a track one obviously sound of Herman's Hermits when my brain conjures up what does Herman's Hermits sound like Jeremy and it doesn't sound like that pretty groovy for them right pretty groovy has it's not like stuck in a different time like a lot of their music feels like to me yeah I enjoyed it a lot more than Pretty much all Herman's Hermits I'd heard before this. And I even went back after listening to this album and just picked random songs through their catalog and verified that, yes, indeed, I don't really like Herman's Hermits, but this album's pretty good. You at least like the song No Milk Today, though, right? I don't know if I played that one. I don't think so. That's a good song. Yeah, that's probably one of their most highly regarded songs. Mm-hmm. It's a classic. Are you guys trying to lure me into saying that a, a Goulman song is good? <laughs> <laughs> what, do you not like Bus Stop? Danny caught us. 
by the Hollies? Uh, no, not really. What about For Your Love by the Yardbirds? I refuse to answer any further questions on this matter. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't think that we would be, be derailed this quickly by the 10cc connection on this episode, but here we are. Well, this let's go back to Herman's Hermits. Yeah, this is their psychedelic album. It's And that song in particular, that's the opening cut. It's the first thing that you would have heard checking this out, Jeremy, with kind of the, the preconceived and accurate idea of what their sound generally is like uh this particular cut museum it might be aided by the fact that it is a different popular musician who wrote this song do we know who that is donovan yeah this was written by donovan and it appeared on his mellow yellow album six months prior to the release of this herman's hermits album and this was a single from this album it only reached number 37 which for some of the artists we featured that would possibly be the highest they ever charted on the u.s billboard hot 100 you know 37 is not bad for some people but for herman's hermits that was considered a flop yeah because they had had multiple number ones by this point yeah they were said this is their sixth lp yeah yeah and they hit big in the states Bigger in the States than in the UK where they're from. Yeah, that's that's what I read. And I also read that like they were almost immediately passed off as a one-hit wonder by the critics. And many people were actually kind of surprised when they were able to maintain a longer career. Yeah. Yeah, and they never really were able to, despite having hit after hit, they never really gained the respect of critics and... Because of that, they've never been put in the same ballpark as other British invasion acts, such as The Who, The Kinks, The Beatles, The Stones, you know, even like Dave Clark Five or The Animals, you know, they're they're not regarded as highly. And, you know, there's there's reasons for that that we'll we'll get into. But yeah, this was their 1967. This was October, as I said, and... So this was released in the wake of albums like Jefferson Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow, The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced? Captain Beefheart, Safe as Milk. Yeah, yeah. Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So obviously the popular music, the post-Summer of Love, it was shifting into that more textured, psychedelic sound. And clearly Herman's Hermit's followed suit with that it's it's interesting with the way this is packaged the back cover of this album has the title and the group name along with the track listing and the front cover doesn't have any text it's a trippy multiple images cover kind of similar to piper at the gates of dawn by pink floyd they were definitely one of those they weren't a band that ever led the trends they followed them that's for sure <laughs> i'm not i'm not uh coming here trying to like claim that they're this uh trailblazer they're just blaze right <laughs> as this album <Yeah>. says <laughs> i real quick though i i really love the artwork on this album and i also really love when an album seems to have the artwork match 
the vibe of the music perfectly. And I think this record does because it's, it's kind of a psychedelic album cover, but it's not as far out as a lot of their contemporaries were who were going like full psychedelic at this point. And it, it matches the music. There's kind of this light, breezy, psychedelic vibe going through the whole thing without ever going full on weirdo. Yeah, or without or without going like too upbeat in your face happy kind of thing it just it maintains a real steady vibe yeah it's lightweight psychedelic mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's not a major or important album but it's fun yeah definitely and it's yeah it's funny you say that because when i bought this album having not really knowing any of the songs on it i i definitely knew that this was going to be the herman's hermit's psychedelic album <laughs> Like there's no yeah. doubt in my mind, <laughs> which kind of leads me to the question of Jeremy's said a little bit about how he feels about Herman's Hermits, but we always like to talk about our background with the group in the winter of 2008, 2009, I had just on an impulse picked up a cheapo CD comp of their music and it turned out that it was and this isn't something this is something I don't know that we've discussed on the podcast before. It turned out that the CD comp of Herman's Hermit's music was re-recorded versions of their popular songs. Probably mm. done I'm guessing in the late 70s or early 80s, I don't know exactly when, but you you you're both aware of this phenomenon. Yeah, I for me I'm more aware of it in like the soul music world because there was this period when disco got big where a lot of the like earlier R&B pioneers would re-record their hit songs with a disco version to try and stay relevant. Oh, so they would really, they would change up the style. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and that is definitely something that happened, updating a song to a new trend. But in this case, it's, I think that the whole point was for the groups to be able to control their masters that they probably didn't have control of the master recordings of the original ones. So they, want to be able to market and sell those. I could be wrong. That's my understanding of why groups would do this, re-record their songs. So they were trying um, to so they were trying to record an identical version of it basically. Yeah, and of course it's nearly impossible to do that when it's sure. 10, 15, 20 years later and production has changed and the musicians have aged <laughs> or sometimes yeah. aren't the same musicians, I'm sure. That's the same thing that happened with the Taylor Swift album pretty recently, isn't it? Really? Yeah, she re-recorded an album that there were, you know, licensing disputes about or something, and she just re-recorded one of her old albums. So it's still happening today. Well, yeah, and I know like uh, that band Car Seat Headrest had re-recorded one of the albums that the main songwriter guy had done when he was just solo recording everything. They, you know, re-recorded it as a full band years later. So yeah it still happens and it's funny because i got used to the way that those re-recorded versions sounded and in some cases it they sound since it's probably late 70s early 80s they had the yeah like the cheesier production elements or at least what i would deem cheesier than like i like the sound of the old authentic mid 60s recordings <laughs> but i got used to the them sounding like the re-recorded versions so i was a little thrown off when i started picking up lps by herman's hermits and hearing the uh, original recordings and i picked this one up for a dollar 99 original copy from 1967 sealed in 2010 <laughs> 
uh yeah so clearly so you're saying it's highly sought after yes (laughs) major work highly sought after my to my surprise sean you told me that it was re-released for a record store day a few years ago yeah i forget what year maybe like five years ago at this point but i saw it got re-released i was like oh do herman's herman's have like an especially rare album or something (laughs) that i didn't know about and i looked up i was like no it's it's not rare, but this artwork is cool, and I think I stocked two or three copies and sold none of them. <laughs> Just kept marking them down in the sales bin for the next couple of years. But going back to our previous history with the group, aside from that, I, I kind of avoided this group for a long time because the first song I heard and associated with them was their hit song, Henry VIII, which I, I still hate it. I don't like that song. <laughs> so I heard that, I was like, well... That's it for me. I don't need to hear any more by this group if that's their hit. And uh, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, and I think that's one of the first songs that a lot of people think of when they think of this group. You know, it's this novelty sort of like Chuck Berry pastiche that I, I can understand people not liking. I've always had a really funny association with it, a family association, one of my aunts on my mother's side was auditioning for something like a theater group, musical group, and she didn't know that she was having to come prepared with a song at this particular thing she was going to, and and she just like thought of the first song she could think of <laughs> to sing, and that was it. Henry <laughs> the Eighth, I Am by Herman's Hermits. And I think she, I think she still got the part, <laughs> but it was kind of this legendary. It was, a, it was, it was a hit. People fucking loved that song back in the day, and I just can't fully comprehend that. But <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a you had to be there kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I had heard them say in an interview that they were particularly popular in the Midwest. Even like they were, they were just this kind of band that appealed to the more like i you know like middle ground people like they weren't a hip west or east coast band in the states yeah yeah and i i I can see that that certain parts of the country they might have hit particularly well that maybe didn't have as many uh rock and roll groups you know the east coast west coast you might be able to go see some some really good groups live maybe not to say that the, the midwest didn't have bands but yeah they just had a specific appeal. Yeah. They touched a market that the other rock bands weren't quite getting to as well. Well, they do have some really great material, and a lot of it is on this album. I, I, I think this is a very strong album, and I'm excited to feature some of these songs. The next one I want to feature is maybe my favorite on the album, and that would be the second song, Upstairs, Downstairs. This is definitely my favorite song on the album. Upstairs, mm-hmm. downstairs, mm-hmm. upstairs, mm-hmm. downstairs, upstairs every night. There's a boy listening to his radio. Downstairs, just one flight. A girl waits patiently. Downstairs every night. Sits a girl listening from the floor below Upstairs just one flight The boy waits patiently DJ 
track is it starts with this kind of happy bubblegum type sound for the first couple bars and then it just instantly switches gears slightly and becomes this song with a lot more emotional depth and interesting lyrics and yeah I've, I've been playing that song a lot getting ready for this episode that one really stuck with me and that one was written by Graham Goldman by the one and only he had written the legend. The yeah, he, he wrote a number of songs for them. We talked about No Milk Today. He also wrote Listen People and East West, another song with opposites. <laughs> Upstairs, downstairs, east west. <laughs> it he, you know, and Graham Goldman, when he was writing these hit songs for groups like The Yardbirds, Herman's Hermits, and the Hollies. He was a teenager himself. The Herman's Hermits were also teenagers at this time. Uh, by the time this album came out, they were all maybe reaching about the age of 20 or so. It, and they had been around for a few years. They were, when they hit, they were like 16, 17 years old. That's pretty wild. That makes me rethink how little I think of their early material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, to... To me, it's all like very simplistic, but they're like literally children, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, they formed in Manchester in 1963, all teenagers, like, yeah, 16 years old or so. Keith Hopwood is the rhythm guitarist, Carl Green is the bassist. Derek Leckenby, he seems to go by the name Leck. He was the lead guitarist. Barry Whitwem is the drummer. And the singer is a former child actor and TV star named Peter Noon. And the name of the group came from singer Peter Noon's resemblance to Sherman from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons, the... Sherman and Mr. Peabody. <laughs> I guess uh, one at one point, Noon put on a pair of glasses upside down, and they all were just like, look, he looks just like Sherman. Mr. Peabody! 
which is funny to think you realize yeah, Rocky and Bullwinkle, that cartoon was around. I think it started in like 1959. <laughs> it goes way back. And again, it sounds like the inside joke that 16 year olds would come up with and think is hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. And Sherman got shortened to Herman or there's a, as with many things with this group, there's this debate about whether Sherman got shortened to Herman or they just thought the character's name was Herman. But regardless, the group became Herman and his hermits and then just Herman's hermits. And they actually started by playing a more rollicking version of like R and B. They, they were a beat band doing like little Richard covers and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They were into the, basically what all those British invasion bands started out on the the American R and B rock and roll. And their big break came in 1964 when their manager invited animals producer Mickey most to a show. And he, he was impressed by, their clean cut image as well as singer Peter Noon's resemblance to a Kennedy. And he thought they were very non threatening. And obviously that is what (laughs) as producer, he made them stick with for the entirety of their career. (laughs) Cause I would say this, their most out there edgy album. They're still pretty (laughs) non-threatening. Yeah, exactly. About the most non-threatening psych album you could get around this time period. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so Mickey Most agreed to produce them and arrange a contract with EMI's Columbia label in England and MGM in the United States. Their debut single is one of their best-known songs that everyone knows, I'm Into Something Good. Something tells me I'm into something good, which is actually a Jerry Goffin, Carole King song. And that one is very Beach Boys, Brian Wilson inspired. It's a very American sounding, which is funny because as Jeremy referenced at the beginning, this is a very British sounding band. And and that uh, distinction in sound was a little bit intentional on their part, wasn't it? I mean, I, I saw them talking about how it seemed like a lot of the other British invasion bands were intentionally trying to have a more American accent to have a wider appeal. And they were a little more unashamed with just being a very British band on record. Yeah. That's to my understanding too, that they, they did not mind being the British sounding British band. And that was a big hit. I'm into something good. Other hits of theirs that a lot of people know, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Can't You Hear My Heartbeat? Of course, we mentioned I'm Henry the Eighth. I Am. Atrocious. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy still hates that song, in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> we'll check in at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of hush. There's a kind of hush all over the world, that song. That's another big song of theirs. And they also had a, a hit covering uh, Sam Cooke's song, Wonderful World, speaking of being R&B influenced. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and they and they just in America especially they had so many hits, and it's it just kind of goes on and on. And it's it's almost surprising. Like you know nowadays people, the like the Kinks, are you know a very revered, critically acclaimed band. But the Kinks only had a handful of hits in the United States, and we you know we we talked about obvious reasons for that on our Kinks episode. They were banned from performing here for. 
four years right during this time period, you know, very yeah, crucial yeah. time period for music. But yeah, Herman's Hermits would have been a household name in the States. Now, aside from Peter Noon, I didn't really know any of the names of in this band prior to researching for this episode. You know, we mentioned, yeah, like we have Keith Hopwood on rhythm guitar, Carl Green on bass, Derek Leckenby on lead guitar, and Barry Whitwam on drums. Uh, they, part of the reason that they might not really be names that people look up to as heroes of their instruments is that there are strong rumors that surrounded this group that session players were playing most of the stuff you hear on their records. In many cases, it's rumored to be Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones pre-Led Zeppelin. Whoa. This has been, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, like John Paul Jones was involved in, in working on some of their stuff, and I'm sure Jimmy Page was too. He was a session player at the time. But it's disputed just how much of that. It's it's largely believed that it's been exaggerated, that these guys were largely playing on the recordings of Herman's Hermits. The That is the band, the original Herman's Hermits. These guys were playing their own songs uh, yeah. in most cases. Because there was kind of a, a pushback maybe from like an older generation around this time that were not into the rock and roll bands coming through. There was this idea that the music was terrible and none of these people could actually play their instruments. So, I mean, like we said, this band was always, always struggled to get critical acclaim. So it would make sense that they would just kind of easily have this rumor about them. They're like, oh, like this is a novelty band that doesn't play their own songs and it's all just studio musicians. Because, I mean, there were some bands that were like that. Yeah. Then too. Yeah, and in addition to that, their hits were generally written by other songwriters, like top songwriters of the day. Now, some of the deep cuts were written by band members, but, you know, like we talked about, they, the first song on this album even is, is a Donovan cover. But I think that also might be one of the reasons they're not more highly regarded. You know, they weren't writing their own songs. and That makes sense. Yeah. I would like to next feature, though, one that these guys did write. This was written by bassist Carl Green, Rhythm guitarist Keith Hopwood and lead guitarist Leck Leckenby, <laughs> Derek Leck Leckenby. And this is Moonshine Man, side A, track four. Some of your souvenirs 
And I'll become Mr. Moonshine Man I'm your greatest fan Come on, beat me now And whenever you can Mr. Moonshine Man Mr. Moonshine Man Moonshine Am I crazy, or is that bass line the exact same thing as a Beatles song? It is a carbon copy of the bass line to the Beatles song Tax Man. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was it's really funny because I swear that all of the groups that t- kind of took their lead from the Beatles did a copy of Taxman in one way or another. The Monkees had Salesman and the Bee Gees had uh in my own time, which it's it, at least the Bee Gees didn't have the word man. <laughs> in the title of their their take on on tax man but yeah in, in the case you know of Herm- what my favorite cover of tax man is what's that my favorite cover of tax man is from the junior parker record love ain't nothing but a business going on from 74 and that version was actually used as the sample for cypress hills i want to get high off their black sunday album so that song is just the the gift that keeps on giving in the music world, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for some reason, Taxman just has some longevity to it. And I always thought Taxman sounded like it was based around the Batman TV show theme, <laughs> which I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of sound like it. Yeah. But yeah, so this is Herman's Hermit's take on that and they decided to keep the man in it just as uh, the monkeys did. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's really funny, but I, you know, and I, I think these, these guys were, I think this team of the bassist, the lead guitarist and the rhythm guitarist, they wrote three songs on this album and it was, you know, they were probably still learning songwriting at this point. So they would just, you know, take cues from the best of them. All the great steel. That's what they say. There's only 12 notes. Come on. I know, right? <laughs> it's just wiggly lines in the air. like Yeah, vibrations. <laughs> so in 1966, the group was nominated for three Grammy Awards, including Best New Artist of 1965. They lost to Tom Jones. <laughs> oh, my. They also, that year, 1966, released a musical film called Hold On, you know, very much following what the Beatles had done with A Hard Day's Night and Help. They were in a few movies, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, so they did one a few years later as well. And and I think that they, they had been, appeared in another film prior to having their own feature. Like, in, in Hold On, they were kind of the center of attention, but they had a, a, appeared in another movie prior to that in a smaller role. Now, the 
The Monkees show debuted in late 1966, and The Monkees, I, I always thought of them as being a Beatles ripoff that was put together by producers to cash in on the Beatles popularity, but a lot of people feel that it was actually the popularity of Herman's Hermits in the States that they, the producers were trying to follow with the monkeys, you know, having a weekly TV show. And the fact that they had Davy Jones, a British guy in the group was to include that kind of that more Herman's Hermits element as well. And largely they did kind of steal the young teen audience of Herman's Hermits by having this group on TV weekly singing songs to young audiences. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The comparisons musically and aesthetically between the bands, there, there's a lot of comparisons you can make between Herman's Hermits and, and the Monkees. Herman's Hermits did make the rounds of all the shows, the Ed Sullivan show, the Dean Martin show, and the Glass, Jackie Gleason show. But by the time this album was released in 1967, they'd sort of, they lost their momentum that they had. It received critical acclaim but it did not sell and it wasn't even released in the uk they didn't even bother <laughs> interesting so yeah it's it's effectively their final album too they as we mentioned they released another musical film in 1968 mrs brown you've got a lovely daughter and the accompanying album to that is considered their final album but it's not like a proper album. You know, obviously, that was a previous song of theirs and that had been a hit, the title track for the movie. Around this time, 1968, Peter Noon co-produced the debut album for Graham Goldman. It's called The Graham Goldman Thing. Have you heard that album at all, Sean? I think I've played a couple tracks, but I, I don't own it and I've never listened to it all the way through. It seems that they were trying to do... The, he's performing a lot of the songs that he's written for other groups. And I think there's probably some others that are originals of, to that album on there, but he does versions of bus stop, no milk today, uh, upstairs, downstairs is on there from this album for your love. His Yardbirds hit the arrangements were done by John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin for that. And it seems that, Peter Noon kind of backed out early on and it, it was like the uh, the artist producing the writer was kind of the concept of it, but hmm. he didn't stick around for the whole sessions. And I think John Paul Jones ended up doing a lot of the work on that. It was recorded at Olympic Studios in London, where very soon Led Zeppelin would extensively record. So it's really strange for me to think how closely connected Herman's Hermits and Led Zeppelin are. <laughs> <laughs> and 10cc and 10cc <laughs> peter noon ended up leaving herman's hermits and, and he was yeah he he was if we didn't make this clear he was kind of billed as being herman uh he was herman and they were his hermits but i don't know how much how seriously people really took that uh you know he clearly went by the stage name peter noon as well yeah, I imagine he got sick of it sometime after becoming older than 16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He has a really, his his full name is Peter Blair Dennis Bernard Noon. <laughs> wow. It's a long name. So yeah, maybe for a little while, Herman was nicer to go by. But yeah, like you said, 
it's so weird and he's often and i think he admits this himself he's kind of like a theater brat this child star you know he he could admit he you know had come up very privileged and found fame very young and i can imagine maybe thought he was bigger than being herman from herman's hermits and he left the group in december of 1970 his solo career did not really pan out <laughs> And the band continued with a singer named Peter Kawap, who actually wrote some of the songs on this album. So he was clearly involved with them prior to Peter Noon's departure. Apparently, they made an album, the remaining Hermits, made an album under the name Sour Mash, produced by one Eric Stewart. Do we know who that is? No. 10cc yeah that's the other 10cc guy right yes (laughs) and and that went unreleased for many years i guess it was a country rock album i want to get my hands on that at some point it was really hard to find that online but yeah another weird lost possible gem (laughs) i guess it remains to be seen but what's interesting to me is this kind of feels like a what if band to me I feel like this album in particular starts to really show some promise in their songwriting and starting to kind of leap out of, I mean, it looks like, you know, they were youngsters that got caught in this sort of pop trap of like, start cranking out these simple albums. And then it comes to this album, they show some promise and then it all falls apart. So I'm like intrigued by well, what's on that unreleased album and what they could have gone on to make, you know? Would they have put out their own Village Green Preservation Society or something? Yeah, possibly. And and I feel like this uh, the songwriting team from the band are starting to show promise on this album with their few contributions. Uh, Carl Green, the bassist, you know, said, sure, he would have loved to have been in The Who or <laughs> some of those other bands. You know, but he's he's glad that he got to, you know, be in a very popular band, tour the world. But yeah, I think they did feel unfulfilled musically. It seems all of them felt that they, they could have done more. I will also say, though, that uh, in retrospect, they had stated that Henry VIII was a good example of them being able to break out and do what they wanted for the first time. <laughs> so oh, I take it all back. I, <laughs> no. No, remember. No, so maybe, seen. maybe, maybe complete creative control would have just produced the worst album ever made. Who knows? <laughs> well, you have to remember that that was also them at like sixteen, seventeen, not them at twenty, fully yeah, blossomed yeah. It, twenty, <laughs> like this album. <laughs> and it was also them just being like, "We want to do something totally different than what we're being forced to do all the time. Let's do this weird song." And all right, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that also. That song probably is has uh, some result of like Peter Noon's uh, background as a in the theater as an actor too, has a very mm-hmm. theatrical quality to it. Peter Noon did return to Herman's Hermits in 1973 for a multi-artist British Invasion tour, and afterward the other members continued touring with some newer members uh, bassist carl green took on lead vocals until retiring from music in 1980 uh, lead guitarist derek leckenby 
died of non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 1994. Drummer Barry Whitwam is the only original member of Herman's Hermits in the current lineup, which is billed as Herman's Hermits starring Barry Whitwam when they tour North America because of legal disputes with Peter Noon, who tours as Herman's Hermits starring Peter Noon. So it's one of those deals where there's now multiple original members touring different versions of the band. Which one of them tours with Herman's Hermits in Rome? (laughs) Cool sublime reference. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) But yeah, I, you know, I don't know all of their, their albums, but this one I can say is my favorite. I do think it's pretty strong front to back and it's only i think it's not even 25 minutes long it's a real quick listen and it's a real cheap buy it sounds like even the uh, reissue you can probably find (laughs) cheap it's a short album you can just blaze right through it oh maybe i was trying to figure out where how blaze factored into it maybe that's it where does i was trying to figure out where the blaze came from and i thought maybe it was you know Maybe it was trying to... I don't know if people said it, blaze for smoking it's pot. It's got to just be a pot thing, yeah. Well, so I had read that there was a dynamic in the group that, you know, they were supposed to be this clean-cut band that never got in trouble, but they were actually kind of kind of wild people. They were. Uh, mo- most of them were alcoholics, but Peter was definitely a pothead, and the rest of the band was always trying to convince him to stop, because if he ever got busted, it would completely ruin their image and their career. <laughs> yeah they they did all get into that and they were like partying they had they had stories of like partying with keith moon and stuff and that's like the most reckless stuff in rock history right there but they yeah they had to watch their image be, and it seems to me that they kept things under wraps yeah just barely apparently yeah <laughs> so well sean I'm, I'm curious to see what you brought for similar music to this some recommended albums yeah so i don't collect a ton of 60s pop records so it was a little bit of a challenge at first and i decided to go with other records from 1967 and the three that i came up with are the turtles happy together which i think is actually a really good comparison to this record and has kind of a similar sound for the most part another one from the same year with a Maybe a little bit more of a psych sound and some other influences, but the grassroots live for today. Mm-hmm. And then one that's definitely in the harder psychedelic vein than this, but another classic 1967 album, The Chambers Brothers' Time Has Come Today. Oh, yeah. And... That we covered previously. No, no, we didn't uh, do that. No, one. We... Oh, we didn't do that. <laughs> one. We did New Generation. No, we just talked about that record wow. extensively on the episode because it's their biggest album. But <laughs> And finally. Highly recommended the first 10 CC record self-titled from 1973, which has uh, a much stronger pop throwback sound to it and is definitely goofier and in a different vein than this record. But you can hear the similarities and obviously Graham Goldman did some writing on both. You forgot to use the word atrocious in your description there. (laughs) To each his own. That's the funny thing is I really feel like it must have been Godly and Cream who brought a lot of the goofy because I'm not I don't hear that in Graham Goldman's early songs that he wrote hit for other people. And I don't I guess I don't know enough about his work outside of 10 CC to say if what that's like. But 
so yeah, even on that first 10 CC album, there's definitely a change, a shift into stuff being uh, goofier than what I hear uh, from like upstairs, downstairs on this album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that middle ground of goofy stuff and serious pop music that created the the best band ever. <laughs> the best band in the world. Aside from Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> One more that I will add to your list is, I mentioned the Bee Gees, who had their song In My Own Time that was another Taxman-inspired song. That comes off of their album Bee Gees First, which is not their first album it's actually their third studio album but that was 1967 so it goes right along the same lines as uh your theme sean i i think that's one that i'd like to do on the show eventually and i i i know exactly who our guest is going to be for that one uh (laughs) (laughs) and yeah but that's a great album I i don't know what it sells for these days i know i bought mine for like 50 cents or a buck around 10 years ago I don't know what those early BGs go for. Uh, they're usually still pretty cheap. Not enough people have figured out how much good material they actually have yet. I'll add another one real quick, though. There's uh, two Monkeys records also from 67. We said they have a similar sound, but Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited and Headquarters are both really good places mm. to start with the Monkeys if you're looking for a comparative sound to this. Yeah, are their albums starting to go up a little in value? Uh, Some of them are, depends on who's selling them, depends on which version of them you have, but there are a lot of Monkeys records out there, and if you uh, look just a little bit, you'll probably find a a cheap copy. The all-music entry for Herman's Hermits begins by saying that as early as 1976, the Monkeys were starting to be regarded by serious music people as as good music and that you know still hasn't happened with herman's hermits so hopefully with talking about this 1967 album blaze we've uh, at least converted a a few listeners out there we're starting the conversation yeah (laughs) (laughs) so if you have a friend who's a music critic first i'm sorry and second (laughs) You should tell them about this album. Yeah, I bet they're all music critics are just dying to rediscover these 60s bands. <laughs> well, that is all I have. And I would like to remind our listeners to check out our Patreon if you haven't already. If you like the show and you want more content, we've got plenty more. We've just, uh, we now have a couple mixes up there that we've made. Jeremy put an especially significant amount of work into his March mix. Uh, that's a, at the... I was blown away by Sean's mix, guys, and I just had to one-up him. I can't not be sitting on the throne. I don't know if I successfully did one-up him, but I put in enough work to try. Yeah. So it's up to you. Peter, Peter, who won? Would, would you say that our mixes are separate but equal, oh, the, or is there a clear winner? Yeah, no, it's it's apples and oranges. I I think you, they're so different that I really can't put one up against the other. And I say that genuinely. I'm not, I, I, I think uh, Sean's is kind of more from a DJ perspective. He highly succeeded in creating a, a great mix that has flow to it. Uh, covers a lot of bases 
also covers you know kind of stays in the the territory of the uh records that surrounded it that we were talking about on the podcast uh jeremy's succeeds on the level of wtf where did he come up with this and (laughs) how did he succeed in making this concept work he 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 it's like a dream state featuring some of the weirdest material we've that we've talked about on the podcast uh and he creates his own little universe within that and i was Highly impressed with both. I, I, you guys have set the bar very high for me with my April mix that will be coming up. <laughs> Bring it on! <laughs> but that's a that's our new ten dollar tier that we we uh, introduced during our Patreon push in February. You can see all the tiers and contribute to the show. Get bonus content in return by going over to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Definitely appreciate the phenomenal amount of support that we are receiving for the show nowadays. Yeah, that ten dollar tier is the highest tier you can get now since all of our twenty dollar tiers are taken. Sold out. Yeah. For the first time it is that tier is closed. Yeah. I'm I'm considering adding a few more slots to the tier, but that won't be till summer at least. Okay. Good to know. I thought we should discuss that, and what better place than to do it on the podcast? In public. Why not? <laughs> Excellent. So once again, patreon.com slash podcast. We are going to get out of here, but first of all, let's talk about the last song we're going to feature. This is the biggest hit from this album. It's a song called Don't Go Out Into the Rain, You're Gonna Melt. And it was written by Brill Building songwriter Kenny Young. And this peaked at number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100, which, once again, for many artists, that would be a pretty substantial hit. For Herman's Hermits, kind of lukewarm. But this is the best-known song from this album. And I think this is probably most in line with the sound people expect to hear from Herman's Hermits on this album. Of, of all the songs. But I think it's still a fun song. Agreed. Well, thank you for bringing this to our attention, Peter Man. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed this record. I will be looking for a copy just as soon as I can get one on the cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't changed my opinion of Herman's Hermits overall. It just changed that I know they have a good record as well. <laughs> Well, if you know, that's something. I'll consider that a success. That's something. <laughs> well, on that note, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Don't go out into the rain, you're gonna melt. Sugar, I'm Come and sit here by the fire for a spell, sugar, how? Please take your shoes off and make yourself comfortable. The weather's miserable and you're so kissable. It's getting late, why don't you stay? It's after one, we've just begun. She's got to go, another no. Don't go, don't go out into the rain.
Now that everybody's gone 